Well, friends, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer before we look to his word, because we're in desperate need of his help. We are dependent upon him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that's evidenced even by what we just sung, that on the last day when we stand before the throne in Christ complete, our lips shall still be saying, Jesus did it all. So we need him. We need God's spirit to help us. Let's go to him in prayer. He's faithful to answer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is good for us to acknowledge what we are, and that's sinners who are desperate for you and your mercy and your grace and your help, even as we look to your word. We praise you as the God who is holy, the God who is righteous and completely just. And we praise you and we thank you that at the same time you are merciful and gracious and slow to anger and that you're abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and that you show steadfast love to thousands of generations who trust in you. We thank you most of all for Jesus who has died in our place, the death that we deserve, has lived the perfect life that we need but haven't lived and who has triumphed over sin and death and hell for us. We pray quite simply that we would see him in your word and from your word today and that as we behold Christ, that we would be transformed, that we would be strengthened and confirmed in our faith. Do that for us now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. He wrote many letters to churches that he had helped start in the first century in the decades following the death of Jesus. He wrote the following words to the church in Corinth. He wrote, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He also wrote that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, But we, the apostles, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he also wrote just a few verses later that when he had been in Corinth with those believers, he wrote, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. Praise God for that. That's what we aim to do. We do it imperfectly, but it's what we aim to do here every week, every Sunday when we gather, is to know nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified for sinners. We talked several years ago when this church was starting about all the different kinds of things that people sometimes rally church plants around that are good. But we made a decision as pastors starting this church, let's preach Christ crucified and see what that will do. Let's rally people around Christ crucified for sinners and see what that will do. It's been, it's been our aim for four years now. Every time we gather here on the Lord's Day, we corporately look to Christ together in the Word. Every time we gather here on the Lord's Day, we corporately come to receive Christ by faith in the table. When we gather here every Lord's Day, we sing songs of Christ crucified and risen 
in the place of sinners. And we pray every time we gather, we pray to the Father in Jesus' name, covered in His righteousness and His merit. We come to the Father in full access, with full access, in boldness because of Christ. Jesus, friends, and His cross is our lives. It's true. We're going to be thinking pointedly about the cross of Christ today from the Gospel of Mark. On the one hand, I rejoice that this is not unusual for us to consider the cross of Christ as a church on a Sunday. But it's really awesome of God that we get today to look pointedly at the death of our Lord from Mark chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them up to Mark 15 and verse 16. So that's Mark 15, 16. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 47 of Mark 15 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry about that at all. We'll get the verses to the sermon text up on the screen for you to be able to follow along. Next Sunday, we'll mark our last sermon through the gospel. We'll be looking at the resurrection then, and today is Christ's crucifixion. Listen now to the word of God. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. 
When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word of our Lord dying for us. So the plan for our time together this morning is a relatively simple one in that this text is not very complicated. It's pretty straightforward. I don't think it needs a lot of explanation from me. We're going to walk through it together just all of the verses and observe things, try to understand it well. Once we've done that, I then want to consider three meditations, reflections, implications, whatever your word is there. We're going to think about what this means, the significance of Christ's death for sinners, what it means for us and for our lives. So that's the plan. So first, we'll consider the text together. It's important before we even look to these verses again that Jesus in Mark's gospel had predicted three times already that he would be rejected, that he would be handed over, that he would suffer, and that he would die. Three different times in this sermon series, we've heard him state that quite plainly to his disciples. Well, it's all coming to pass now. In verses 16 through 20, more or less what we have going on there is the mocking of Jesus continued. He's already been mocked and beaten by Jewish people, namely the religious leaders of the day, the council, the Sanhedrin, had been mocking him in the text that we considered last week. And now that he has been handed over for crucifixion by the Roman governor Pilate, the Roman soldiers now take their turn to mock him, as they would have other people who would have been executed, other criminals. The mocking of Jesus is thick with irony because they mock him as the king of the Jews. In reality, yes, he's the king of the Jews and he's the king of the universe. And yet we're making fun of him and his plight. They treat him poorly when they had sufficiently mocked him by the time we get to verse 20. They strip the purple cloak that they had put on him and they put like his own loincloth back on him and they let him out to crucify him. So he's headed now to crucifixion. Verse 21, as we pick up with the rest of the the account, as would have often happened, Jesus was very weak from the beatings that he had received. He would have probably lost a lot of blood, a lot of trauma, in particular from the Roman beating, the whip that we considered very briefly, that it would have pieces of bone and metal, things like that in it. It would have been very traumatizing to the body. So he's weak from what he's endured. He can't carry the cross beam that he's going to be crucified on. And so we see that a man who's coming in from the country, Simon of Cyrene is his name, is pressured by the soldiers to carry the cross of Christ. Just a brief thing, the fact that the names of his sons are mentioned perhaps means that Mark's original audience would have known who these guys were. We don't know that for sure. Perhaps they were believers. Pretty cool to think about. No other reason for them to be in there. 
other than for people to be familiar with them. In verse 22, as we move forward, we see that they brought, the soldiers brought Jesus to a place outside the city called Golgotha. It's an Aramaic word meaning skull, a place of a skull. The Latin rendering, for those curious in the room, the Latin rendering of Golgotha is Calvarii, from which we get the English Calvary. So when we say Calvary, we are saying Golgotha, the place, the hill upon which Christ died. In verse 23, we see that the soldiers offer Jesus a primitive anesthetic, wine mixed with myrrh. But he doesn't take it. He refuses it. And then verse 24, the simplicity with which this is stated is striking. And they crucified him. There it is. Understated, probably because crucifixion would have been very familiar to people in the first century world, in the Roman context. People would have known of the horrors of this. It doesn't really need to be explained. They crucified him. Mark just tells us that's what happened. At this point, it's good for us to observe some things about the way that Jesus dies and the way that it goes in his final moments. As we thought about even last week, and we've been thinking about for a long time, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, would go and die as it was written of him. There are so many things in this passage that we're considering today that were written of in the Old Testament. If you pick up Psalm 22 this afternoon and read it, you might be confused into thinking like this book should be in the New Testament because it's clearly talking about Jesus. Because there are things in that one psalm alone that are occurring right here in our passage today. For example, in verse 24, we see that the soldiers divided Christ's garments among them and they casted lots for his clothing to decide what each should take. In Psalm 22 and verse 18, David writes, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In verse 27 of our passage today, we see that Jesus was crucified alongside two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. The prophet Isaiah had written in Isaiah 53 that the servant of the Lord was numbered with the transgressors. Truly he was. In verses 29 and 30 of Mark 15, we see people deriding and mocking Jesus. They pass by and they wag their heads and they taunt him. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They make fun of him. In Psalm 22, David wrote, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me and say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in the Lord. Verses 31 and 32, the mocking continues now from the chief priests and the scribes. They say to one another amongst themselves, he saved others, he can't save himself though. Let the Christ, they don't think he's the Christ, right? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, prove it to us at this point. Let the Christ come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. David again in Psalm 22 had written, dogs encompass me, meaning like wicked people seeking my harm encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones and they stare and gloat over me. 
In verse 34, we're going to get there more detail, more detail in a moment. We see Jesus cry out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is citing Psalm 22, verse 1. That's how David begins that psalm. In verse 36 of our text today, we see that Jesus is offered sour wine in his final moments on the cross. David writes of how they gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. All of these passages from the Old Testament are understood to be talking about ultimately the Christ, the Messiah who would come, the greater David, David's son, yet David's Lord that we sung about. The one who would come to live and die in the place of his people in order to save them from their sins. The one who would reign forever on the throne. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, did in fact go as it was written of him. Put your eyes back on verse 31. We're going to circle back there for just a moment and keep making our way through the passage. We see there that the chief priests and the scribes continue to mock Jesus, saying this, he saved others and he cannot save himself. There's deep irony in this verse. There's blindness and hardness of heart for sure. But the irony is that only in not saving himself in this moment could Jesus in fact save other people. Only in staying on the cross and giving his life could he in fact save people. Had he come down, he would have saved no one. In verse 33, put your eyes there. Sometimes this is something we sort of speed bump, like boop, boop, we just kind of speed bump right over it that the darkness comes right here for three hours. So you see when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's an observation here, biblically. What time within the Jewish year is this taking place in? We've considered this. It's Passover, right? It's Passover. Well, in Exodus, where the Passover happens, you may be familiar with the story. I can summarize this quickly for those who aren't. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. And God, through the prophet Moses, is going to free His people from that bondage. And in order to do that, through Moses, he threatens Egypt with ten plagues, a series of plagues that he's going to send upon Egypt so that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, will let God's people go. Well, the first eight plagues happen, and the ninth plague that is threatened is darkness. Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 and 2 read this way. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in the land of Egypt three days. Okay. The ninth plague happens and then there's the tenth and final plague, which is the killing of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. This is the firstborn period, not just of the Egyptians, but of every firstborn. And so God then says to his people through Moses, I am going to protect your firstborn children through the Passover. You will kill a lamb and you will put its blood on the doorposts of your houses. This is how you're going to do it. And when I pass through and I see the blood, I will pass over your house. On any home, on any house where there isn't blood, the firstborn will die. And that happens. There's death everywhere in Egypt. The Passover comes. Pharaoh says, all right, that's enough. Israel can go. 
And then many will be familiar with the story that as Israel is fleeing, Pharaoh's heart changes. He has a change of heart. He's hardened and he sends his whole army. He goes along with them to pursue the Israelites to the Red Sea, where God then parts the sea miraculously for the Israelites to pass through and the sea then engulfs the Egyptian army. God's people are rescued. The exodus happens after the Passover. All right, so what's the significance of all of that? We talk all the time. The Bible's about Jesus, right? All right, you want to talk about fulfillment, stuff that happened like over a thousand years, well over a thousand years before Jesus ever came. We talk about fulfillment. In Egypt, there was darkness in all the land for three days. Here at Golgotha, there was darkness over the whole land for three hours. In Egypt, Passover lambs were slaughtered and their blood saved the firstborn children of Israel from the judgment of God. At Golgotha, God's Passover lamb, his firstborn, only begotten son, would shed his blood to save God's people from God's judgment. In Egypt, God's people were delivered from slavery. At Golgotha, God's people were delivered from bondage to sin and hell. The Passover was about Christ. And the Exodus was about Christ. Those things were in the Bible because Christ was coming and they pictured how God would save his people through Jesus. That's how we read our Bible, right? Put your eyes back on verse 34. Jesus cries out here from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're going to think about this more together later, but suffice it to say that Jesus was forsaken by God not for anything that he had done. He was forsaken by God because he bore our sin. Verses 35 and 6, we see that bystanders misunderstand what Jesus is saying. They think that he's calling the prophet Elijah. And they want to see what's going to happen. They give him some sour wine to drink, fulfilling Psalm 69 so that we can hear, so they can talk better, so that we can see what's going on here. But then in verse 37, we see that Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last. And just a note here, friends. This was not the way that men would have typically died on the cross. So death on a cross typically would have taken up to two days. It was a death of prolonged suffering and increasing weakness over that long span of time. So crucified men did not cry out with loud voices as they died because they would not have had the strength to do it. They literally are dying from exhaustion. So it's unusual. We know from John's gospel, chapter 19, verse 30, that that loud cry that Jesus gives out is that it's finished. It is finished, he says. And then he gives his spirit out. What exactly was finished that day, we might ask? Well, redemption, salvation, the covenant of redemption that was made before the world began between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit was being fulfilled and accomplished in time and space by God the Son in human flesh. This was always the plan. That's remarkable. Before the world was made, 
this covenant existed. God would save his people this way. The son would accomplish it. His cry in death was a cry of victory. That it's over. It's done. I've done the job. Everything that redemption required was finished. And just a brief, we'll be thinking about the resurrection next week, and there may be some of you thinking, well, brother, he hasn't risen from the dead yet. That's true. That, in one sense, in every good way I could mean it, is a foregone conclusion. He would rise from the dead. His sacrifice would be vindicated. He would triumph over the grave, right? He would triumph over Satan. He would triumph over hell. But it's quite clear in the mind of Christ and even in the mind of God, as we're going to think about the curtain pairing in just a moment, that redemption and reconciliation and all of those things were accomplished at the cross when Christ died. His resurrection would secure our resurrection and would vindicate his sacrifice for the rest of world history. Praise God. The work is done. Verse 38. So here's the whole curtain piece. We're going to think about this more later too. But it's at this very point at the death of Christ that the temple curtain was torn into from top to bottom. So the curtain, we're going to, we've talked about this before, but just to be very clear, this curtain hung in the temple. There would have been several, but the most significant curtain that hung in the temple was separating the Holy of Holies, the most holy place from the rest of the temple complex. Nobody could go in to the Holy of Holies where the mercy seat was, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat where sacrifice one day a year. That's why we read it this morning. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. One time a year, the high priest only would go into that space to make atonement for himself and for all the people. Other than that, nobody's allowed. And you read the language just like I did this morning, that he's got to make atonement for himself and there's blood every place so that the high priest doesn't die. That's the curtain. So that curtain in the moment of Christ's death rips from top to bottom, that curtain signifying the separation between God and men because of his holiness and our sin is ripped in half. Jesus' death had torn it. The death of Christ had torn it and God himself was the one who did the tearing. That's what the whole top to bottom piece makes clear. This wasn't some human endeavor. From heaven downward, this is ripped in half. Verse 39. There's a Roman centurion that's standing by as Jesus is being executed. And Mark gives us a very wonderful piece of detail here. Mark has consistently been bringing us back over and over and over again in his gospel to this big question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And here, quite beautifully in the providence of God, we get the answer to that question from the lips of a Roman soldier. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Moving on into verse 40 and 41, we see that there were eyewitnesses to the death of Christ, friendly ones, not hostile ones only. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and the younger of Joseph, and Salome, we're told in verse 41 about how when Jesus was in Galilee, these women followed him, ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. 
There's a sweet relationship between these women and Christ. They had followed him. They had served him at various points. Much could be said about this right now. It's another sermon for another day. But Christianity is quite unique in world religion in exalting women, actually, in terms of being equal to men. Because in this context, that was not the case. And so the fact that these ladies are commended and are the eyewitnesses of Christ's death is quite significant. And it's not ironic that in the world's scope of history, where women are treated best is where Christianity has thrived. It's a real thing. That God, in making men and women in his image of equal essence and value, upholds women in the way that he does. But these women, it's significant. So their eyewitness is significant. Why? If you notice in verse 40 and 41, they witness Christ's death. In verse 47, you see that some of these women witness Jesus being buried. He's dead. They see him go in the tomb. And then we're going to learn next week that some of the women from this very group also witnessed the resurrection of Christ. It's a big deal. Like this group of individuals are the only group of people to witness all three of those things. Death, burial, resurrection. In one sense, these witnesses, these eyewitnesses, these women, beheld the central facts of the Christian gospel. We confess them this morning. That Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. The Apostles' Creed, right? They witnessed those things. It's a big deal in the text. Let's move on to Jesus' burial in verse 42. Just consider these last few verses together. In verse 42, we see that evening had come. It was a day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. So if Jesus is going to be buried... It needs to happen quickly because it's sundown, the Sabbath starts, can't be doing that stuff. Verse 43, we learn of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He's rich, he's respected, he was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin. He too, we see, was looking for the kingdom of God. And in John's gospel, we learn that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. That's what he says. We see in our text that Joseph took courage and went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Now again, we get these great details. Did Christ really die? Was he really dead when he went in the tomb? Because you hear this nonsense sometimes. Oh, well, he wasn't really dead, right? That was a theory even in his day. He wasn't really dead. So the resurrection's phony. And here we even have the Roman governor verifying it with a centurion. Is the dude dead or not? Because he's pretty, pretty quick death. Is he dead? They verify that he's dead. When he learns that Jesus is in fact dead, he gives the corpse to Joseph. And then Joseph in verse 46 buries Jesus in a rock tomb, undoubtedly that he owned. Fulfilling yet another thing written of the suffering servant of the Lord, that they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, Isaiah 53, 9. So friends, as we've considered the account together, I want us to think now about the significance of these things. We're going to consider three different reflections, meditations in the rest of our time. Number one, we're going to consider Jesus being forsaken by God for us. Jesus being forsaken by God for us. What does the Bible have to say about this? We've considered how Jesus was crucified in the place of sinners. He was hanged on a tree. 
What's the big deal about that? In Deuteronomy 21, God through Moses reveals, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Paul picks this up in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In other words, brothers and sisters, Jesus would die under the curse of God. He did that for you and me. He died under the curse of God so we wouldn't have to. Jesus also in being forsaken by God, we've already considered that he wasn't forsaken by God for anything he had done. He was forsaken by God because he bore our sin. In 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, Peter writes that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus has delivered us from sin to righteousness. Jesus has healed our wounds. What wounds are those primarily? It's our sin, our corruption. And he has quite literally brought us back to God. It's the image of Jesus seeking after his sheep and laying them on his shoulder and bringing them home. He has done that for you and me. Jesus, in being forsaken by God, was made to be sin for our sake. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange, as it's so often called. Jesus takes our sin, we get His righteousness by faith. Through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God is ours. Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So when you read 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't misunderstand might become the righteousness of God to be something that we do. It's given in Christ so that in Jesus we become the righteousness of God by faith. Jesus, brothers and sisters, entered into our God-forsaken state so that we might be delivered from sin, so that we might be given the righteousness of God and be reconciled to God our Father, and so that we would even have Christ's own joy, as he says to his disciples in his last night on earth. John 15, John 17. Jesus, quite simply, was forsaken by God so that we never would be. Praise be to his name. Second reflection for us is on the curtain being torn. On the curtain being torn. Many in the room might be familiar with the story of the Bible, but some may not be. The Bible begins in the Garden of Eden. 
It's a perfect place where God creates all things. He creates animals and vegetation and all this, and the crown of his creation is man, made in his own image. He makes woman from man. Male and female, he created them, and everything is perfect and good. But shortly into the biblical account, in the third chapter of the scripture, we learn about the original sin, the fall of humanity. Adam and Eve rebel against God and break the covenant that he had made with them. And so judgment and curse comes. As a part of sin, human beings would be separated from the presence of God. Adam and Eve originally were in perfect fellowship with God all the time. It would not be so anymore for the human race. So then the rest of the Bible as it unfolds, Perhaps one of the most horrific images in all of Scripture is at the end of Genesis 3 is Adam and Eve are driven. That's the word. They're driven out of the garden. They're driven away from the perfect presence of God into wilderness and wasteland. And God puts angels, like scary angels. You guys realize that like when people encounter angels in Scripture, it's a terrifying reality. It's not precious moments. It's something else. So he puts angels at the garden's gate to guard the entrance. Keep man out. Because of man's sin, it can't be there. As Scripture continues to unfold and God's presence is uniquely with His people Israel in the tabernacle and in the temple. We've been talking about this curtain. There still is a separation between God and man. Man can't be in the presence of God lest he die. So it continues on and continues on. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. One of the names given to Christ by the prophets, one of the names given to Messiah by the prophets is Emmanuel, God with us. God would come and dwell on earth. And through his perfect life and then his sacrificial death, he would make a way back. To himself. Jesus accomplished that for us so that we now can access God and approach the throne of God in boldness and confidence. And the whole story ends, this big book ends over here in a heavenly city, with a heavenly city coming down, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. God will dwell with man and man with God. He will be their God and they will be his people forever. That's the story of Scripture all accomplished through Christ. Our great high priest, we read about a high priest this morning that was a mere man. Our great high priest entered into the presence of God on our behalf, bearing the sacrifice for our sin. And that sacrifice was himself. And so our eternal being with God has been secured. The prophet Ezekiel, it's a big book in the Old Testament. He writes from the city of Babylon as God's people have been exiled out of the holy city and out of their own land. He writes of the heartbreak and the suffering of exile, being a sojourner in a foreign land, longing to return to Zion, longing to return to the city of God, right? Well, that book ends with a promise of redemption and a promise of a heavenly city. It reads this way. This is the final verse of Ezekiel. 
The circumference of that city shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of that city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. That's the goal of Scripture, is that we would be restored and reconciled to God forever. The book of Revelation, the very last book of Scripture, reads this way in chapter 21. John, the apostle, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And when we read that, we say Jesus accomplished that for us. He brought an end to our alienation. The curtain being torn was a demonstration from God the Father that the work of Jesus Christ was sufficient to accomplish that task. Third reflection for us, our final one. We're going to consider for just a moment the the final cry of Jesus, his last words. It is finished. It is finished. When he said that, we trust he meant it. That everything required has been done. That salvation has been accomplished and it's over. Jesus, we sometimes joke, uh, the podcast that I'm I'm on, we'll sometimes joke in a way about this. Not to make light of it, but to point out something. That Jesus on the cross, he said it is finished. He did not say, tag, you're it. He said, it is finished, not tag, you're it. Like, go do your part. Go do your part so that you can be saved. He said, no, I've done it. It's over. And God's people are saved, really, by what I have done. And that reality, brothers and sisters, that reality, that it's done, that there's nothing left to do but to trust Christ, brings with it assurance that that I am reconciled to God. That I can't mess this up because if I could, I would, but I can't because Jesus has done it. It brings with it peace. It's everlasting. Assurance, because of Christ, assurance is not something that we're chasing after. I don't know about you, but So, I mean, I think our natural bent is this way. And for some of us, some of the things that we've grown up with, we constantly feel this way. Like I'm chasing after assurance and peace with God. I've got to do enough. I've got to be sincere enough. I've got to hate my sin enough. I've got to be enough. Jesus is enough. And so assurance Peace with God is the essence of the Christian life. It's not the pursuit of the Christian life. Assurance and peace and safety because of Christ are the resting heart rate of the church. 
I've already referenced the fact that we say a lot around here that Jesus is enough because he is. But the fact that redemption and salvation is done is why we say that. That's why we say it. It's not just cute. It's not catchy. We don't care about cute, catchy, and clever. It's not true. Jesus is enough because he's done it all. It's like we sang. Jesus paid it all. Not most, not some, all. His sacrifice once for all time has purchased and secured all of God's people forever. We, the scripture teaches us, by faith are united to Jesus. The most common way that Christians are referred to in the New Testament is not by the title Christian, not by the title believer, not by the title saint even. The most common way to refer to Christians in the New Testament is that they are in Christ. In Christ. Being in Christ and united to Him, we are forgiven of sin. For real forgiven. We are really guilty and we are really absolved. It's a mind-blowing reality. Because we all have that feeling deep inside like, man, if you only knew. Well, God does only know how bad it is. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. And Jesus has accomplished your forgiveness, right? People will often talk. It's kind of funny on the other hand. People talk in the church sometimes like, well, God knows my heart. As though that's a good thing. People will talk about sincerity. Like, oh, well, you know, God just cares that I'm sincere. As though that's a good thing. Your heart is jacked up like mine and your sincerity ebbs and flows by the minute. But in Christ, you're forgiven. In Christ, you're redeemed. In Christ, we are cleansed. We're adopted by God. We're loved by God. We're known by God. He knows you and loves you in Christ. In Christ, we are sanctified. Being in Christ guarantees us our sanctification. In Christ, we are declared righteous and one day will be righteous and with God forever. Jesus has become to us, as Paul writes, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is our life. I would be remiss in talking about all of these things if I didn't help us consider the love of God the Father toward us in giving His Son for us. Sometimes I think it can be misconstrued. I don't think here at CBC, but sometimes people get to the idea that Jesus is kind of appeasing this angry God. Like Jesus is appeasing the Father who's mad at us. That like Christ is having to convince the Father that this plan of salvation is a good idea. It's important that we would know from Scripture that the Father has loved us in such a way that He sent Jesus to save us. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That's not a quantitative descriptor. It's a qualitative descriptor. God in this way loved the world. right? That He sent His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The love of God is demonstrated to us in His plan of redemption, and in a pointed way at the cross. The love of God and the justice of God embrace each other at Calvary. 
Christ the righteous was cursed and forsaken for sinners. We often will cite Romans 5, that while we were still the enemies of God, Christ died for us. We should cite that all the time. We should cite Romans 4, verse 5 all the time too, that God justifies the ungodly. Why is that a big deal? It's because of this. God set His love upon us not because He found in us the good that He desires. It's not why He loves you or me. If God was only going to love people in whom He saw the goodness that He desires, He would love no human being save Christ. But God's love is remarkable because God's love lavishes good and grace and mercy upon the wicked and the poor and the needy. So, a word for CBC this morning that's really good news is that, brothers and sisters, God is not angry with you. God is not angry with you. Like, praise be to His name that's true. Because we live our lives, if, if anybody's honest, we live our lives so often. We're like clinging to the promises of Scripture where God says, you're my child and I love you. And in our experience, sometimes it's like, okay, God, help me believe that because I don't feel like that right now. I feel like I'm your enemy because of my sin. I feel like, ah, I don't know how much you love me because my life is hard. Whatever it is, it is good news that God is not angry with us. He is not some heavy-handed taskmaster. He's not just waiting for us to mess up so that he can drop the hammer. I think that's the perception that some have of God sometimes. He's waiting to drop judgment on us when we mess up. Scripture says he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Scripture tells us that nothing will ever separate us from His love for us. We know from the Word that His disposition toward us will never change because He doesn't change. I quote the the, uh, song, hymn, I hear the words of love a lot and we'll do it again. It's quickly becoming one of my favorites. We sing it a lot at our house. The last two verses of that wonderful hymn written by Horatius Bonar go this way. My love is oft times low. That's true. My joy still ebbs and flows. You bet it does. But peace with him remains the same. Why? No change, Jehovah knows. Next verse. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the top. That's gospel. That's a good song. Brothers and sisters, the love of God, I'm landing the plane, I promise. The love of God for us matters in so many ways. Like for your life. Union with Christ. His righteousness being yours. His death counting to yours. His merits, yours. His joy, yours. His eternal inheritance, yours. Change your life. Doctrine and theology is immediately practical in terms of how we live. A deeper understanding of our union with Christ and the sufficiency of His work 
and a deeper understanding of the Father's love for us and our standing before Him will change your life and how you view it. Not only does it result in more joy and more safety, it matters in your day-to-day experience of the Christian life in this way. An understanding of your union with Christ and the sufficiency of His work and an understanding of God's love for us and our standing before Him helps us in our repentance. It helps us in our repentance. How so? Well, when we sin, which we will, what do we do? Like the Christian life is one of ongoing repentance, is it not? Yes, all the time. Repentance. All right, so when we sin, which we will do, what do we do? Well, if we're thinking that I've got to be doing my part in order to be saved, if we're thinking that God is somehow mad at me, that God is going to drop the hammer on me, it results in all kinds of bad things. It hinders repentance. Like The idea that we would scare people to repentance is not a motivation in the church. right? Now, to preach the wrath of God to people who don't know God, judgment's coming, repent, yes. But to those in Christ, we preach Jesus and the love of God and it actually fuels repentance. How so? Because if we're afraid and if we're thinking that I'm dropping the ball and I'm going to be damned, we hide from God's presence. We turn repentance into penance, right? Where we got to be grieved enough. I've got to be hating myself enough for what I've done. I've got to do enough to demonstrate to God that I'm legit and then maybe I can go to him. Rather than going to our father who loves us, covered in the blood and righteousness of Christ and saying something like this, Father, I did it again and I'm sorry. I need you to forgive me. I need you to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, which you are faithful to do. I need you to restore me, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me and give me grace that I might not sin, but live to you. That's what the saints do. That's what the redeemed do. That's what children do. A deeper understanding of our union with Christ and the love of the Father for us helps us in our pursuit of obedience. We obey from the heart, Romans 6, 17. We obey in freedom as beloved children, not as slaves. Joy and love and gratitude and safety and a desire to honor God propel us in obedience. They propel us in the fight against sin. We pursue obedience from a place of resting in Christ and in the love of the Father rather than pursuing it from a place of fear and of trying to earn God's favor. There is a world of difference. We tend to think wrongly that if if I'm not earning something or if I'm not escaping punishment, that there's no real skin in the game anymore and so obedience is somehow hindered by this gospel message. It's not. It's not. The sufficiency of Christ's work and the love of God the Father for us in Christ motivates and fuels holiness and obedience and repentance. 
counterintuitive at the human level, just like the gospel. We're still in January, so this is my kind of parting shot. We're still in January, which is the season of resolutions. I don't know how many resolutions you've made. I don't know that I've made many, like, formal ones, some informal ones. But do you want to make, as a church, like, do you want to make a good resolution? I think this would be a great thing to do. Let's make a resolution as a church. Let's resolve as a body together to grow in our understanding of our union with Christ this year. Let's resolve as a body of Christ to grow in our understanding of the sufficiency of Christ's work this year. Let's resolve as a church to grow in our understanding of the love of God for us this year. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Lives will change if we do. May it be so. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and thank you for loving us. May we never cease to be astonished by your love and grace. We thank you for Jesus. We praise you for your perfect plan of redemption that he has accomplished. We are astonished and amazed that we are reconciled to you and loved by you, forgiven by you, all because of what Christ has done. Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying for us for becoming a curse for our sake, for bearing our sin in your own body on the tree. We give you praise and thanks. You're the only one in the history of the world who did not deserve to suffer, and you suffered for wretches like us that we might be restored to God. We thank you. Father, we pray that you would continue to minister to us as we come to the table this morning. We pray that as we receive Christ by faith in the bread and the juice that you would strengthen and sustain our faith in Jesus, that we would be stirred up in love and affection toward Christ and gratitude toward Christ and love for each other. And we pray for you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.